a lot of people came up to me after the crash in the months and years after and said, why didn't you say anything to them that the weather was bad? And, and I told everybody, I said, it's not my position or it would be inappropriate as a pilot to go to a fellow pilot and kind of give a suggestion. It would be like being here in New York City on a snowy day and you come out of your office and you see someone getting in the car and saying, hey, I don't think you should be driving in this weather. You probably would be punched in the face by a fellow New Yorker. It's kind of the same thing in aviation. You have to trust the confidence. Welcome to episode three of Fatal Voyage, the death of John F. Kennedy Jr. with me, ex-homicide detective Colin McLaren. We have already seen how John Jr. had been born into a family blessed with extraordinary success, but also seemingly cursed with terrible misfortunes. So it seems there's just this kind of litany of recklessness, bad behavior, criminality, and bad luck running through all these kids. It seems like one thing after another, they just get infected with generation after generation. Now we're going to trace how, as he came into his prime, John sought to live up to his family name in more ways than one. We know he was good looking and we know there were a lot of women that claim to have known him quite well. Actresses, people in royal families, the list is quite long. Brooke Shields, Cindy Crawford, Sarah Jessica Parker, Daryl Hannah, Madonna. His dating history is like a who's who of the hottest women of the 80s and 90s but also how ultimately he couldn't escape the darker side of the Kennedy legacy. John F. Kennedy Jr. may have had a death wish when he took that plane up. July the 16th, 1999 had been a hazy, humid day in the Northeast States. And as the evening fog settled in, a single engine Piper Saratoga aircraft turned and banked in the skies above Martha's Vineyard. It was piloted by John Jr. And on board was his wife, Carolyn, and her sister, Lauren. Jr. had lost his bearings and he was losing control. What it is, is you're descending. And of course, as you descend, airspeed increases. So what you do is you pull back on the controls or the yoke to try to stop it descending. But if you're in a turn, whether you know it or not, as soon as you start pulling back, you increase the rate of turn, and you just literally spin into the, into the water. Fellow pilot who knew John Jr., Kyle Bailey, gives his rare insight into what was happening. Every instructor, instrument instructor, will tell you, when you're flying instruments, disregard all the signals that your body is telling you. You have to understand the instruments are right and believe what the instruments are telling you not what your body is telling you. So in this instance, JFK Jr. probably was going with what his body was telling him. And plus, I'm sure he was panicked. I'm sure he probably was sweating. And he had probably upset passengers in the, in the back wondering what's going on. So everything going on probably complicated the situation and made him more more anxious. And there, were, there was probably more anxiety. And he didn't do what his instructor probably told him in flight training where Trust those instruments, the instruments are right. Carolyn was in an argumentative mode and uh, she was shrieking and yelling at him as he was trying to fly the plane. And um, I'm sure that all this stuff, the things that were on his mind, the end of his marriage, all this was weighing on him. So 
with all this pressure, he, he's trying to fly this plane and he just got lost in the fog. Richard Bender was part of the air crash investigation team that examined the wreckage of Junior's plane. What happened is he got into a situation that, well, to use the aviation vernacular, he uh, got into a graveyard spiral, we called it. The graveyard spiral is, that's probably the last thing you'd want the way to, the way to die in a plane is because it literally is a high-speed corkscrewing of the plane spiraling down to either land or in this case to the ocean so just to give you an example so in in normal flight if i see that the plane is descending my normal thing is to pull back on the control column to gain altitude to recover from a plane that's going downward so now he's seeing his altimeter completely unwind in the spiral corkscrewing down to the ocean so as an unexperienced pilot He's probably pulling back on the control column, but since the plane is in a turn going downward, that pulling back on the control column is actually making the spiral tighter and increasing these G-forces tremendously, possibly overstressing the plane and possibly causing components of the airplane to fail, such as the wing, parts of the tail, perhaps parts of the flaps or the landing gear if it was extended or not. So can you, if you could imagine that, and you probably had, I'm sure, screaming passengers in the back realizing that things aren't going well, to put it very lightly, and everything happening, and now he's doing this, pulling back, and now that's getting tighter. So, I mean, it probably was complete chaos, and I'm sure he was probably aware that the end is probably coming. Then he goes into a steep dive, and now she's probably shrieking even louder and they're all killed. So you're flying and then you hit the water, it's the snap of a finger, everybody's dead. It's just the snap of a finger, everything is over. Typically over water, hitting the water at that speed in a dive like that, the minute it's an impact that the whole plane is completely destroyed, the bodies are probably just completely beyond recognition from, from the impact and the G-forces. Down he went. He went in, impacted the ocean. And when we recovered the wreckage, it was pretty well chewed up with what we call hydrostatic damage to the whole airplane, really. I mean, there was no way it was survivable by anyone in the aircraft. As the news broke that JFK Jr.'s plane was missing, the media frenzy exploded. Could the Kennedy curse have struck again and have claimed its biggest victim since the assassination of Bobby Kennedy 30 years earlier? All I'm telling you is that we got an ELT hit. It was one ping. Uh, it was picked up by the Air Force C-130. We have asked the Rudy to break away from its current work and to go over and investigate it. We are now centering our search about 17 miles west of Martha's Vineyard, uh, the approach to uh, Martha's Vineyard Airport. Kyle Bailey, who had watched John take off from Essex County Airport that same evening, returned in the morning to a scene of utter chaos. So I went to the airport, I saw some police cars. It was starting to get light. It was light for maybe an hour or two, probably two hours prior. And that's when like everything went crazy. I went to the Associated Press. And then it was like the whole media just kind of 
exploded on the airport. But I initially told the media, the first reporters that were on the scene, I said, unfortunately, if this plane isn't found within like the next few hours, that it's, it's not going to be a good outcome. So what was happening, all the pieces of the puzzle kind of were coming through me. So we had all these reporters from all around the world, people in Boston, people along there, everyone was working their sources, trying to get information. So there was two young girls who actually, uh, I came across that night and they stopped me when I had my duffel bag and they said, we just saw JFK Jr. They, they were giggling and laughing like they couldn't believe it. And they apparently, I think, attempted or waved to him or made contact with him and he said hello to him. And a reporter called me and said, apparently that the, the car has been towed that there was a ransom note on the car. And I, I, I put two and two together and I said, that was probably the two girls probably after he left, probably put a love note on, on the car and their phone number or something. So I was getting all kind of bits and pieces of the puzzle. Everything was coming through me and reporters were calling me like from all around the world asking me, we've heard this, what does this mean? What does that mean? So they were kind of using me for information because they didn't know the technicalities of aviation. And, but yet I was getting a lot of information kind of putting the whole, you know, jigsaw puzzle together and then it was just chaos from, from that point. History always repeats itself, and this isn't the first time the US has gone through an impeachment. I recently learned more about the nation's first impeachment with The Great Courses Plus. It's an educational streaming service with tons of videos available to watch or listen to. The newest release is called Going to the Devil, the Impeachment of 1868, a narrative documentary on the impeachment of Andrew Johnson, the first in history. The course was easy to follow and the story was fascinating, not like I was being lectured to at all. With The Great Courses Plus, you can watch or listen to classes on any topic you can imagine. And they're all taught by professors and experts in their field. It's a great way to make learning more accessible. If you're ready to make 2020 the year of learning, sign up for The Great Courses Plus today. They're offering our listeners this amazing deal. Three months of unlimited access for just $30. That's only $10 a month. But to get this limited time offer, you have to sign up with my special URL. Get all the details on thegreatcoursesplus.com slash jfkjr. Thegreatcoursesplus.com slash JFK JR. It took until July the 19th before fragments of Junior's plane were located. Indications are that uh, we may have found some debris, and, uh, and that's being uh, investigated right now. I refuse to speculate about the condition of the cabin. I'm merely laying out that we have found pieces of foam insulation. Uh, they range in size from about uh, two inches in diameter up to about a foot in diameter. These were found spread over an area about a mile long, again in the uh, pretty much in the same area as where uh, the landing gear and suitcase were found yesterday. In 1999, Jeff Guzzetti was an airspace engineer and airworthiness investigator with the National Transport Safety Board, charged with piecing together what happened to John's Piper Saratoga. He too recalls the enormous media attention. 
So I will say at the time, uh, uh, of course, there was a, a lot of scrutiny, a lot of news media, but the wreckage was kept away from where the news media was being briefed. And it was kept under wraps, pretty secure, because, of course, people would love to get photographs of the, of the wreckage. But, you know, this was pretty high visibility. And uh, we did our best to make sure there were no leaks of photographs of the wreckage. I mean, the NTSB has a very rigorous process and they'll publish eventually the photographs of the evidence. But at the time, we wanted to, to keep things secure. The bodies of Junior, wife Carolyn and her sister Lauren were finally recovered five days after the crash. Only Junior's body was partially autopsied that evening. And then the three bodies were rushed off to Mayflower Cemetery in Duxbury, Massachusetts, where they were cremated. The next morning, their ashes were scattered at sea off the coast of Martha's Vineyard. We will be hearing more detail about the autopsies in a future episode. But for the moment, the sheer speed at which John Jr.'s body was examined and then cremated raised many eyebrows. As did the fact he was cremated within hours. Besides that, who does only a partial autopsy in the case of a suspicious death? Here's author of Exploding the Truth, the JFK assassination, John Kerner. So there was a closed casket. The body was cremated. I think because they had to, because there were probably parts of the body that they couldn't find for Lauren Bissett and for Caroline, that the proper thing to do was just to have a cremation for whatever parts that, that they could find. For a Catholic family, cremation is unusual. All the other Kennedys were, were buried with, the, with you know, the entire body. So this is the one exception, which is, I think, because they had to, because there wasn't a full body there. It was in pieces. It was just parts of his body, probably. They couldn't show that to the family. It was just, uh, there was there was probably been parts of the body that weren't even there anymore. So it just was uh, just so tragic. Forensic pathologist Cyril Wecht taking the bodies for fast cremation certainly would preclude any subsequent examination. You cannot stop a body from being cremated if that is the family's decision. But yes, once you cremate, then you are obviously destroying any opportunity for someone to do a follow-up examination. It was a sad and lonely end to what had been a life filled with such potential. He always lived his life with grace and style, and he was the type of person I think we even now could remember because he lived above politics, loved by all people, and there are so few like that anymore. And perhaps the saddest thing was the lingering feeling that Junior's potential had never really been fulfilled. Here's reporter Andy Tillett. Make no mistake, in the 80s and 90s, JFK Jr. was a huge celebrity. He'd not only inherited his father's name, but he also had his good looks, charm, and big personality too. The only question was, what was he going to do with himself? Because certainly at first, he appeared pretty hesitant about a political career. He traveled for a while, he failed the New York bar exam twice before finally passing it, he wrote some articles for the New York Times, he dabbled in acting, Author Doug Weed, who has written dozens of books on American presidents and their families, explains that acting may have appealed to Junior, precisely because it provided a means of escaping his famous name. 
he wanted to be an actor and he could have been a great actor. He was handsome. All through history, children of presidents have been on the stage. I asked Jack Ford, I interviewed him and I said, why were you an actor and why are so many children of presidents actors? Why did John F. Kennedy Jr. want to be an actor? And Jack Ford said, I don't know about the rest of them, but for me, it was the one time I could get on stage and I could belt out lines and nobody could get mad at me or see political inference in those lines because they were written by somebody else. So for whatever his reasons, JFK Jr. wanted to be an actor. He, he was a heartthrob, good-looking guy. He probably would have been great at it. But Jackie Kennedy put her foot down. Absolutely not. So it was kind of like, I'm not saying you have to be president, but you can't be this, you can't be that, you can't be this, you can't, all the other doors she would try to close. And before her death, she sent him a note that said, you especially have a place in history. And uh, of course, he died himself just shortly after she wrote him that note and she died. But there it was. He, he had to have felt it all his life, even, even though she never said it. He, here was this note, you have a place in history. He had to know she was thinking it to feel that pressure. Jackie Kennedy put pressure on her son, Junior, in other ways too. Throughout the 80s and 90s, JFK Jr. dated or was linked to many of the most desirable women of the age. Supermodels like Cindy Crawford, A-list actresses like Daryl Hannah, Brooke Shields, even Madonna. And the thing was, it was never like he was punching above his weight, celebrity-wise. Another of his girlfriends, Sarah Jessica Parker, later said that she had no idea what real fame was until she dated him. But at the same time, perhaps because of his dad's famous fondness for a pretty face, he always got the sense that Mum Jackie did not approve. Here's reporter Leon Wagner, who would become close to the family when John Jr. was a teenager. His mother died in 94 and obviously it was a blow he loved he loved his mother he, he told the friends that he had been born again when she died that he was free and um he would make his own decisions make his own mistakes what have you and he dearly didn't want to break up with those glamorous movie stars but um she drove a wedge between them i mean she, she was just a conniving kind of a a controlling mother. It was around the time his mother died that he started dating Carolyn Bassett. She was definitely different to his other girlfriends. She was beautiful, of course, but she wasn't famous in her own right. She worked for Calvin Klein and outside of a very closed, small fashion industry. Nobody had ever really heard of her before they got together. John and Carolyn began dating in 1994. The following year, she moved into his Tribeca apartment and they soon became engaged. In 1996, she left her job at Calvin Klein and they got married in September in a ceremony they somehow managed to keep secret from the press. As Leon Wagner and Doug Weed explain, for a while they seemed to be the quintessential couple. Well, when they first met, she seemed to be and I've heard some numerous uh, friends of both him and, and, and Carolyn, that she was pretty sober and 
you know, was worked very hard in the fashion industry and was surrounded by fashion people all the time. At their house in Soho, they had parties constantly with models and, and fashion designers and, and what have you. And she was in control in those days and they, they were happy. I know the public image and, and that the public image was that they were a beautiful couple and that it looked like they had each found their soulmates and that it was going to be very, very hard for John F. Kennedy Jr. to, to find the right lady and it looked very clear that he had. And with happiness in his private life, Jr. finally found fulfillment in his professional career. In 1995, he and his friend Michael Berman, a public relations supremo, found George, an ambitious, glossy, monthly lifestyle magazine. The tagline was not just politics as usual, and the debut issue featured Cindy Crawford in a bikini top, dressed as George Washington. I think his real moment of accomplishment was with the publishing of George the publishing of his magazine. His old friends, the, the president's old friends, told John F. Kennedy Jr. that your dad always wanted to be a publisher. His dream was to be a publisher. He never wanted to go into politics. That's what his dad wanted him to do. So John F. Kennedy Jr. did what many presidential children will do. He did what his father said he wanted to do, whether it was real or not. And that was a great moment in his life when he published George. And it was a great magazine and uh, it was uh, a wonderful reflection of him and his, how he thinks, his diversity, his colorful personality. George Magazine, which was a magazine that was, was his baby, his creation. And he completely controlled the magazine. He decided who was going to be on the cover, who was going to be interviewed. It was a, a lifestyle, political, politics as entertainment magazine, a slick, big magazine, a big, colorful magazine. That was part of his creating something uh, completely on his own and taking charge of his life, which he had never been allowed to do as long as Jackie was alive because she would always interfere and she would criticize him she would tell him you can't do that or you shouldn't do that and he pretty much obeyed her orders even though he dearly didn't want to the happiness was not to last Although George Magazine had launched with a huge fanfare and once held the largest circulation of any political magazine in America, its pop culture meets politics genre soon wore thin. Readers drifted off, and with them, so did advertisers. Within a couple of years, George had gone from the hottest media property in Manhattan to a loss-making white elephant. George Magazine made a big splash, and... Um attracted a lot of attention and um, a lot of people liked it but it was just the exact wrong time to start a big flashy magazine it was the dawn of the internet it was just a different thing and, and magazines like that just 
weren't going to work no matter how good they were. And uh, George started to flounder. By 1999, things were falling apart for JFK Jr. His beloved magazine was in free fall. And rather than spending his days directing glamorous cover shoots or interviewing cultural icons, he was instead frantically trying to secure investors for his project. And away from the office, his marriage was also disintegrating. Here's Kennedy reporter Leon Wagner. He married Carolyn Bissett, who is a fashionista who worked for Calvin Klein and, um, you know, was a elegant, beautiful woman and crazy, absolutely crazy. And it turned out his, his wife had was constantly had, had drugs all over their apartment and used when they traveled and what have you. He certainly didn't, didn't want to get arrested, you know, given who he was and all that. She used cocaine regularly and he had several screaming fights with her where he screamed, you're a goddamn cocaine head. The cocaine just spiraled out of control and other drugs as well. Marijuana, obviously, what have you. And um, that's when he became angry at her and yelled at her and cursed at her for doing that, for subjecting him to that. And that apparently made her even crazier. They had fights on top of fights, and um, uh, the, the marriage was doomed from the beginning, I, I would think. But um, she had an affair with an underwear model named Michael Bergen during their marriage. Reporter Andy Tillett describes how the media reacted to John's troubled marriage. Well, there were these rumours flying around about her drug use and that she was having an affair with this guy, Michael Bergen, and how by summer 1999 they were pretty much separated. And when they were seen together, they always seemed to be arguing. And of course, any high-profile couple going through what they were going through would be newsworthy. But when it's JFK Jr., that's front-page news. I mean, it's sad in retrospect, of course. He'd moved out of their apartment, he was living in a hotel, his wife's apparently seeing this model, his magazine is failing. He must have felt horribly alone. The irony, in a, in a certain sense, is that when John went to the offices of George Magazine during those, that period, he had to walk right past a huge billboard of Michael Bergen in his Calvin Klein underwear, which was up over Broadway. And um, I, I don't know for a fact that he knew about the affair yet, but I think he found out in that, in that period of time. But so the, the magazine was failing. His marriage was, was gone, was, was more or less finished, but he was still fighting with, with Carolyn. He had moved out of there, there house in Soho and uh, moved to the Stanhope Hotel uh, up on Fifth Avenue and um, was living by himself there desperately trying to uh, save his magazine and um, trying to convince people to to invest in it and what have you in including some of his relatives and most no, and everybody turned him down because they thought it was throwing good money after bad and it was then that um, he decided to fly up to uh, Martha's Vineyard for a wedding of Rory Kennedy and his cousin. 
It was against this turbulent professional and personal backdrop that John prepared to fly, along with Carolyn and her sister Lauren. From New Jersey to Martha's Vineyard, fellow pilot Kyle Bailey was one of the last people to see John Jr. alive. So the, the day of Friday, the 16th of July, 1999, was a typical hazy, hot and humid summer day. In aviation, we call that the three H's, standing for hazy, hot and humid. Just oppressively hot, looking at the blue sky, New York City skyline, surrounding mountains, everything pretty much. You could see the, the smog and the humidity and the reduced visibility in the air. But for the average person, it was just a basic, typical, very hot, clear summer day. So I was planning on flying to Martha's Vineyard that evening. And I actually flew previously that day earlier, about one or two in the afternoon, just a local flight, and was planning on making the trip to Martha's Vineyard that night. I was checking my weather, you know, observing conditions at the airport, observing everything going on in the airport, and I decided not to fly based on a number of factors. Part of those factors were the weather conditions and the lower visibility, the humidity, and what I feared would be a low cloud deck and, and fog rolling in in the Martha's Vineyard area later that night. So I pretty much scrubbed my plans, I would say about five or six that evening. John had originally planned to fly no later than 6 p.m. that day, meaning visibility would have been ideal until he landed at Martha's Vineyard. Although he had experience flying under visual flight rules, he was not qualified to fly under what's called Instrument Flight Rules, IFR, which is when visibility is so poor you rely solely on your instruments. For that, he needed an instructor beside him. Yet, amazingly, he declined one, electing to fly solo. The weather was probably 50-50, you know, in, in my weighing whether to go or not, but I was, I was very concerned with the deteriorating weather conditions. I was making the visibility out to be maybe about four miles. So under visual flight rules, uh, you need at least three miles. So this was what is known as marginal conditions where you're kind of teetering on the edge of VFR and IFR. But I knew as the night you know, went on, especially in, in the coastal region islands, that most likely fog would develop because you're over water and fog rolls in very easily. John was running late, and night was creeping in. So what happened, he arrived at the airport, I want to say approximately 8 p.m. with his sister-in-law, Lauren. Then his wife, she arrived shortly after in a black Lincoln town car. I saw them when they arrived chatting on the side of the hangar, kind of away from uh, Lauren. They kind of looked like they were having somewhat of a serious discussion. I mean, it wasn't, when I say somewhat of a serious, I mean, there was no laughing or anything like that. You know, that could have meant maybe somebody was complaining about being late or maybe somebody was debating what to do. I, I don't know, but there was a little bit of a discussion between the two of them, but everything else seemed pretty much normal. Well, I, I saw them get into the airplane, the three of them, Lauren, Carolyn, and JFK Jr., and I think it was at, at different times. It wasn't precisely in the same minute, but eventually they all got in the airplane. So I saw the plane take off after, you know, seeing them board, and I, and I obviously knew it was JFK Jr.'s plane. 
So, you know, I kind of just, I saw it taxi the wrong way. I'm like, let me just watch it take off. I saw it take off and then it, it made the right turn towards easterly towards the, the coastline of, uh, you know, Westchester and Long Island. It just went through my mind that, you know, I kind of thought to myself then and I said to my family later, I said, you know, I hope he had an instructor on the airplane with him because of the conditions. Next time on Fatal Voyage, the death of John F. Kennedy Jr. Now, the times where he really went sour on the paparazzi, of course, when he was married to Carolyn, they were fighting all the time, and, and they fought in public for reasons best known to themselves. I guess just because when they were in public, they, they wouldn't hesitate to have these screaming matches. And um, that obviously was a, a photo opportunity. Don't do that. Don't come up to my girlfriend when she's on the beach alone. The Death of JFK Jr. is hosted by myself, Colin McLaren. It's executively produced by Dylan Howard and Matt Sprouse and is a production of Broad and Water Studios and Endeavour Audio. Executive producers also include Tom Freestone, James Robertson and Andy Tillett and the series is written by Dominic Utton. Reporting by Douglas Montero, the series is mixed and engineered by Sean Kravitt and Sam Adder. There is so much more to this story and you don't want to miss anything, I can assure you. Make sure you subscribe to Fatal Voyage the Death of JFK Jr. wherever you get your podcasts.